0: Okay, we're looking at Luke, if you're a visitor here, uh, what we're doing, is looking through the whole of Luke. And so we've got to a point now in what we call chapter 9, and uh, I've forgotten the water. So, <coughs> chapters, could you just, oh thank you. Thank you very much, yeah. thank you. I suppose I should point out that the product place and other travel points are available. <coughs> So what we're going to do, we're just going to read this part of the chapter, and we're going to start from, in fact we're going to start from where we were last week, when Steve talked about the Transfiguration, and we're just going to go through. So if uh, I can have the words up on the screen. Okay, so these are from the, the New American Standard Version of the Bible, I know other, you have other versions, um, so I'm just going to read this to you. So, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, was speaking of his departure, about speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, he's my only boy. And the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it down, but they could not. And Jesus answered and said, "You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you?" and put up with you. Bring your son here. And while he's still approaching, the demon slams him to the ground and threw him into convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, (coughs) gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marvelling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them, so they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this thing. It's important to see what's going on here, and it's important when you look at a passage, you look at what comes before and what comes after. So we start by looking at transfiguration. When Peter, James, John and Jesus go up the mountain and have this glorious experience, which Steve talked about last week. I don't intend to repeat any of that, but it's important we know what came before. Because the point is this. What we're seeing here is basically a living parable. It's a picture of what Christ has done. See, Christ was on top of the mountain. He's with his father. The glory, the majesty, the power of God, and He leaves that to come down the mountain to a broken world. He could have stayed on the mountain top. He chooses to come down. We live in a very broken world. So he comes down to a world filled with spiritual squalor and distress in order to make known what his father is really like and reveal his glory To some long lost sons and daughters. From the glory of heaven to the filth of the world. And Jesus comes face to face with a demon. Now, at this point, I want to digress just slightly. And we're just going to talk about demons and things like that. Now, before all of you say, oh no, he's going weird, alright? I believe in God. I believe in the devil, I believe in angels, I believe in demons. As Christians, that's what we do. And the Bible tells us a little bit about the character of the devil or the Satan. And we don't want to dwell on this, we're not going to spend a long time on this, but it's important that we know what the Bible teaches about these things. Because it surprises me how many Christians do not really understand the devil. The Bible tells us a lot about his character and his mission. And Craig, a few weeks ago, told us didn't he, that Satan was a fallen angel. He was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels for leading a rebellion against God. And you'll find that in, in Revelation, in Isaiah, and in Ezekiel, which are books in the Bible. So, Satan, all he is, is a fallen angel. And the first thing that I find that most Christians are confused about. The devil is not omnipresent. In other words, he can only be at one point in time and space at any particular time. He's not like God. God, can, God is everywhere. He is not God, he's an angel. He can only be in one place at a time. If any of you want to read a really good book that really exposes a lot of what um, the devil is, how many of you read the Screwtape Letters? Uh, you all ought to, you all ought to read the screw tape letters it's a wonderful book, it's written by C.S. Lewis and they're letters from an imaginary senior demon to his nephew who's an apprentice demon and basically the apprentice demon is given a Christian to work on and these letters are a correspondence between this the, the nephew the junior devil, devil asking the senior devil how's the best way to go about it and uh, one of the best bits in the book, I find, is the bit where he's asking, he's, he's trying to get the Christians to disagree. You know, and he, he keeps sort of saying to his Christian um, project that uh, maybe, you know, maybe he didn't really rise from the dead and, and all the rest of it. And the, uh, he writes to his uncle, and his uncle writes back and says, look, oh, you are get about this completely the wrong way. You'll never get them to disagree about things like that. What you need to do is concentrate on Mrs. Ponsonby's hat. I don't know if it was Mrs. Ponsonby, but concentrate on the hat. Start spelling what an awful hat she's wearing. And before long, they'll all be talking about the hat. And I just thought that is so typical of churches. You know? It's the little things that we really start griping about. The feedback on the sand desk. You know that We do! You know, poor poor I, I feel sorry for the you know, if everything's going fine, no one notices something. If anything goes wrong, goodness me. Anyway. There's only a finite number of demons. He's not all powerful. He can't do everything that God can do. And his best weapon, well, his, his most powerful weapon, does anyone know what the devil's most powerful weapon is? It is God, basically. He talks. And he talks rubbish. And that's the thing. In the garden, what did he do to Eve? Did he try and ram her through with a pitchfork? No, he talked to her. In the wilderness with Jesus, he speaks to Jesus. In Revelation 12 and verse 10, it calls him the accuser of the brethren. One who accuses. And what does he say? Well, in, John, in John's Gospel, it's recorded, Jesus says of him, he calls him a murderer and a liar, and in fact, the father of lies. He's a liar. Now, you have to remember that we still have to confront him. We're still in a warfare. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But To put this in perspective, there are three things that wage war against me. The world, the flesh and the devil. And the biggest problem that I have in my spiritual life is not the devil, it's Neil Hubbard. He is the biggest pain to my spiritual growth and life. Because that's my flesh. And it's my flesh 99 times out of 100. The weaker should be up. However, when we do come into that face-to-face confrontation with maybe a demon or whatever, there's something you have to remember. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, You are from God little children, and have overcome them because Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's just say that together. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You now, Fraser, when you're out on the beat, when you face those confrontations, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Charlotte, when you're away, even though it's a Christian, in fact, especially because it's a Christian organisation. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And those of you who uh, maybe run your own businesses and you have problems with customers, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember that. Demonic possession is fairly rare in this country, and I think there are reasons for that which we don't need to go into. In my Christian life, I've known two people, one of whom was a uh, well, they who came to know the Lord. And all sorts of things started happening. But that is as much as we're going to talk about him now. We're going to move on. We're going to look into the passage. So Jesus is at the foot of the mountain. And there's this big crowd. The nine disciples that have been left behind. They're trying to cast out this demon from the boy. And they can't do it. Even though at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 9, it says that they've been given the authority to cast out demons. They just can't do it. The story, this story is told in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, as well as um, Luke. Luke misses out some of the details in his account, but he adds others. Luke doesn't record the conversation between Jesus and the Moist Father. He doesn't record the conversation with his disciples have with him regarding prayer, which is unusual for Luke, because Luke concentrates a lot in his gospel about prayer, but he doesn't mention it. But Luke does record some things that the others don't record. In Matthew, Matthew implies that the boy is a lunatic. In other words, someone with mental health issues. In Mark, it implies he has epilepsy, which is a brain condition. But Luke Remember, Luke's the doctor, right? Luke's the scientist, Luke's research. He doesn't mention that, he comes straight to the point and he says he has a spirit. The Greeks and Romans, they knew all about mental illness. If it had been mental illness, Luke would have put mental illness. He does not he says he's a spirit. Can I just make a point here? I am not saying that everyone who has a mental illness or as I epilepsy, is possessed of a demon. I just want to make that really, really clear, so don't go away thinking on saying that I'm not. But in this particular case, it's the spirit. And the second point that Luke makes, and none of the others do, is this is the father's only son. It's interesting it doesn't record the mother being there. Maybe the mother had died. We don't know. What all three Gospels do record though is the words that Jesus says which are fairly strong. So imagine he's, he's come down the mountain the father is there pleading and begging and Jesus calls them a fault in the world. unbelieving and perverted generation How long shall I be with you? And I do look at commentaries. A lot of commentaries, they say, who is Jesus talking to at this point? Is he talking to the Father? Is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to the crowd generally? A lot of commentators think that he's probably talking to the disciples because they can't cast out the demon. I think you have to look at the context here. If you look closely at the words he says, the words he's quoted from are a song in the Old Testament. It's going from a song way back in Deuteronomy 32. It's commonly called the Song of Moses. It's a beautiful song. But basically, this father and his only son, he shouts out. The Bible uses strongly, it says the father begs. He begs the disciples, he's begging Jesus to look at his son. The father is being robbed of a relationship with his son because of demonic possession. And he's convulsing his son. His son, it's twisting his limbs. It distorts his features until he foams at the mouth. It, in my Bible, it talks about him mourning him. It batters him. It shatters him. The Greek means it breaks in pieces. It talks about the demon dashing him on the ground. Tearing him apart. Slamming him. This is a very violent thing that's happening to him. Again, the Greek means to burst. It's as if the, the demon is trying to smash him against the ground so he bursts. And his father is appealing to Jesus. He begs him, he beseeches him. This is distressing, very distressing for the father. Think how distressing this is for Jesus. So many of us have an English view of Jesus. White, middle class, no emotions. Nothing can be further from the truth. Jesus showed his emotions on more than on one occasion. It often talks about Jesus having compassion. Do you know what that word compassion means? It means his guts churned. He had that feeling in his belly of just absolute horror. In two places, it says that Jesus weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem and he weeps for his friend Lazarus. Jesus feels. Jesus engages his emotions with what is going on. In the Song of Moses. I'm just going to ask if you can pop it on the screen. We're not going to read it all because it's quite long. We're just going to read a few bits. So basically Jesus, when he's saying, you foolish and perverse generation, he's quoting from this. And there's a lot. Listen, especially at the beginning. Give ear, O heavens, let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the Rock. His work is perfect, all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is He. They, that is Israel, have acted corruptly towards Him. They're not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse, and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O oh, oh foolish and unwise people? Is not He your Father who brought you? He has made you? He has established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your Father. He'll tell you. The elders, they will tell you. But it is. God found Israel in the desert land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up over its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread out his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. And there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth and he ate the produce of the field. I love this bit. He made him suck honey from the rock, oil from the flinty rock, curds from cows, milk from the flock with the fat of lambs and rams, a breed of Bashan, and goats with the finest of the wheat and the blood of grapes who drank wine. But Israel grew fat and kicked you were growing fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not gods. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately. Whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a reverse generation, sons in whom is no facelessness. This is Jesus reminding the people of that song, And what I believe Jesus is saying is to Israel at this particular point, talking to all of them. That how many times, how many times do I need to step in? How many times do I need to rescue you? You keep making mistake after mistake. You know, isn't this the words of a parent to their, to their teenage child when they're leaving home? And I know some of you are parents that you know. That they make mistakes and you're there and you feel the pain, but you're there, you still love them, you still care for them, these are the words of unconditional love from an unconditional lover. In that song of Moses, one of the bits talks about God being perfect and just, whereas we are twisted and crooked to demoniac and this love explains what happens next first he rebukes the evil spirit and whenever Jesus whenever it says he rebukes he also casts out he casts them out and then... He heals the boy. One of the people who I said I knew who was possessed in my own experience after he'd been prayed for and after the spirit had been cast out he spent many, many months having medical treatment just to repair the damage that had been done. In many people I know where demons have been cast out they need that healing process as well. But then this is the best bit. He gives him back to his father. So can you imagine what the father's feeling at this time? His son, basically, has come back to him. His son is freed. The relationship is restored. Dreams are called back to life again. Fulfillment, where a moment there was hopelessness tears of joy is lost son is, is found again. Later on in Luke, in chapter 15, there's probably my favourite parable. Now I know that I won't get to, to preach on that because I just won't. This is my favourite parable. <laughs> but that's the story of a father looking out for his son. And when he sees his son He doesn't just walk to him, he doesn't wait for the sun to come to him, it says he runs to him and it says he hugs him, he puts his head on his neck and he kisses him again and again and again. When this sun is covered with a pink poo, the stench must have been awful. Under his fingernails. In his hair. But the father hugs him. And he kisses him. Because that's our father. That's the one who wants us back. I hope you can see what's going on here. Jesus wants to give us back to our father. But as the kids learn at Holiday Club, there's a choice that we have to make. It's up to us. There's a guy called Dave Gooding, and he puts it a bit like this. How then should our trouble be put right, and sons and daughters be won back to the Father? If the trouble began with ingratitude and then unbelief, deepening into disobedience, and alienation and faithlessness until any old religion, demonic power or superstition was more attractive and fascinating than the father himself. It's obvious that mere moral sermons and exhortations would be inadequate to bring them back. It would need a new revelation of the father, of his majesty and glory. To awaken a sense of the incomparable wonder of God. And invoke faith, worship and obedience. And that's what's just happened. It took the Son of the Father to do it. From the splendour of the transfiguration, where a voice in the cloud from the glory pronounces, My Son, My Chosen One, is come down the mountain to the spiritual squalor of the plain. In order to make known what the Father was really like, and to reveal His glory to His long-lost sons and daughters, and the effect on the people, it says they were amazed at the majesty of God. The Greek again gives this impression; means they were struck out of their senses. In other words, they had their minds blown. And while the crowd is there, marveling at all he's doing, and it's a bad on to come back. So while he's there, he says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's telling them again the things that they won't expect are going to happen. What were the last words spoken on the mountaintop out of the cloud? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But then it said, the disciples didn't understand. But the bit that's quite hurtful and painful is it said they were too afraid to ask. And my challenge to you this morning is if you don't know this Jesus, if your relationship has not been restored to your Heavenly Father, don't be afraid to ask. It would be a tragedy if you leave here without under your asking. Father. Just pray. Some of my words. Lord, if they haven't originated from your heart, then I just pray that you just wipe them away from people's memory. But Heavenly Father, I just ask now, for those who don't know you, Lord, that they won't be afraid to ask. They won't be afraid to ask for you to reveal yourself to them. For you to prove yourself to them that they may know the reality in their heart of having a father who wants them back. Not like our earthly fathers who have many, many faults, but this is the perfect father. The father who loves us. The father who hugs us, even when we're covered in people. The father who weeps. The father who kisses.